Good morning. It's good to see everyone here. I just sat and enjoyed that last song and to hear all of you sing together, I will build my life on you. You are a firm foundation. Just remind me of the words that Ken shared at the beginning that it's good to come together. It's good to worship together. It's good to have this fellowship. So good to see all of you. We are in our discipleship path series. And this is the third and final message on following Jesus on the discipleship path. Today we're talking about sanctification. We're looking at Ephesians 2, uh, verses 10 to 22. And over the last three weeks, we have looked at the discipleship path and we've looked at what it means to follow Jesus on the discipleship path. Two weeks ago, we talked about separation, how there is separation between us and God because of sin. Last week, Gary had a very powerful message on salvation and reminded us that salvation is possible through Jesus, not because of what we have done, not because of what we do on a day-by-day basis, but because what Jesus has done. He had that picture of the bridge. And salvation, faith in Jesus, is not looking at the bridge, admiring the bridge from a distance, believing that the bridge is structurally sound and can hold a train, but faith is getting on that train and going across the bridge. And today we're going to talk about sanctification, what it means to follow Jesus after that crossing of the bridge, because it's not the end of the journey. Crossing that bridge is not the end. You don't build a bridge so that a train can go from one side to the other and then park next to the tracks and just stay there. The train uses the bridge as a step to move on. It's got a further destination. The destination is to come back to God. And the tracks, the way after the bridge is following Jesus. So we're going to read uh, Ephesians 2, uh, 10 to 22. It's quite a long passage. Uh, I will read it actually starting at 8, just as a reminder of the, uh, the last verses from last week. Ephesians 2, 8 to 22. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this not your own doing. It is the gift of God not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, that reminds us of verse four, but God, but now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off, and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father." So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself 
being the cornerstone in whom the whole, whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that we are able to come together here as your family, that we are able to lift our voices to worship you. You are worthy of every praise. Father, now as we look into your word, would you speak to us? Would you open our hearts to hear the truth you have for us? Father, we are bombarded by messages, by opinions, by uh, information day by day from all directions. We want to hear from you. Would you uh, clear our minds and our hearts that we would hear from you this morning? We ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, let's look at our passage. Verse 10 says this, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. The first thing it talks about there is us being God's workmanship. And that talks about identity. And for some of you, this might be the only thing that you need to hear this morning. When it says we are God's workmanship, workmanship reminds us of the verse that was, uh, the, the word that was in verse 9, that we are not saved by works. And now the very next sentence says we are God's workmanship. The two words there are quite different. Uh, works, we're not saved by works. It talks about general work, labor, activity, doing stuff. This word here, workmanship, is talking more about artistry, about a craftsmanship. Uh, the word poem in English, we actually get that from this Greek word that is used here. So in a way, we are God's masterpiece. We are God's poem. Have you thought of that recently? Do you know that you are God's special creation? You are God's workmanship. You are God's poem created to express his glory. You are created in his image so that people would see you and would worship God because of that. Now we talked two weeks ago that that was broken, that original intent was broken and there was sin that caused separation. But here it starts, verse 10 starts with four, we are his workmanship. So the verse is proceeding where it talks about that God redeemed us, God saved us by grace. I think the computer just gave up. Uh, when it talks about redeeming us, it says in verse 10, for we are his workmanship. It's almost like God wants to fix what was broken and he wants us to realize that we are his workmanship. And then it continues, created in Christ Jesus for good works. So there's an identity thing there. We have an identity given by God and not just identity, but purpose as well. He created us for his glory. He created us to represent him in this world. He created us for good works. Isaiah 64 verse 8 gives us a picture of a potter and clay. Verse 8 says, but now, O Lord, you are our father, we are the clay, and you are our potter. We all are the work of your hand. God is the potter, we are the clay. And it's not the clay, it's not the pot that decides what they want to do or what they should be filled with or what their purpose is. It's the potter who creates something with a purpose. 
It gives it identity, gives it the shape, and then uses it for a purpose. And that is what it's saying here that is true for us and true for each one of you as well. I came across a, an article summarizing a book. Travis uh, Wax wrote a book called Rethink Yourself. And it's not a self-help book. Uh, he writes that at the beginning. In the book, he talks about three different approaches, three different lenses, uh, how we look at the world. If you remember back two weeks ago, I came up here with those hideous ski goggles, and I said that the way we look, the, the lens that we use affects how we see the world, and how we see the world is going to affect how we live in the world. And so the way we see is very important to how we live. And he talks about three lenses. There is looking in, looking around, looking up. Thanks, by the way, Gary. I appreciate the uh, seamless service here. Uh, three lenses of looking in, looking around, looking up. And he says the first lens, very predominant in our Western culture, North America, is to look in first. And we're told you need to be true to yourself. You need to look inside to find who you really are. What is your truth? What is what are your values? And then we look around and we find our tribe, we find our family, we find our friends, our community based on what our values are and what works well with our values. And then maybe we'll look up and we'll see if there is a, a religious tent that can fit over our nicely constructed uh, paradigm that we can then uh, include in our life. And so that's looking in first. We find our identity, we find our purpose, we find our meaning in ourselves first. There's another approach, and that is looking around first. And that is more of a um, um, community-based approach where you don't necessarily look inside yourself first, but the community, the family, the, the um, culture tells you what you're supposed to do, what you're supposed to be, how you, how you fit in. And then you look up, uh, at the spiritual, and then last of all, you look inside yourself and you see how do I fit into what uh, the culture is asking or expecting of me. And often that's a shame-based culture where it's not about you expressing yourself, but it's about you fitting into the rules uh, and norms of society. And then Travis Wax, Wax talks about a third approach, and that's the look-up approach. And I'd like to read uh, his summary of that because it expresses really well uh, what the Christian life is supposed to be and what we'll be talking about uh, in the rest of this message. The look-up approach, though, says to start with God. You look up first in order to see what God says about you and to better understand his divine design, his workmanship. Looking up prioritizes the transcendent. God, not you and not your community, is the one who defines you and your purpose. Next, you look around to the community of faith that is called to cheer you on, to correct you, to love you as part of the family that looks up as its starting point, not ending point. He's talking about the community aspect, and we'll be hearing about that a little later as well. Then you look inside, and you see how God loves you just as you are, while still planning to make you the best version possible as he conforms you into the image of his son. This is the biblical way of seeing life. And so this morning, first question is, are we looking around or are we looking in to find our identity? Because if we start with that, I, I saw an illustration the other day about um, a button, button-up shirt. And if I get the first button wrong, I'm going to be struggling with the rest of the buttons. It's not going to work out. and I, I don't know which, which one is it. 
you have to get the first button right, whether you start at the bottom or at the top, and then the other ones work out. And in a way, this is the first button. If we're not looking up, if we're not seeing uh, creation, if we're not seeing ourselves in the right lens, then everything else that follows is going to be skewed. So God gives us identity. We are his workmanship. He is the potter. We are the clay. It continues, we are created for good works. Now, this word works is exactly the same word as is used in verse 9, where it says it's not by works that you've been saved. And so we have to, we have to understand that and separate, separate that we're not saved by works, but at the same time it says we were created for good works. And that's not a contradiction. It doesn't mean that, okay, we're not saved by works, so we shouldn't be doing works. We were saved for good works. God created us as his handiwork for good works. And he had planned that before the foundation of the world. In verse, uh, chapter 1, verse 4, it says, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. God's plan precedes the sin and the separation. And he has redeemed us not by our own works. He has redeemed us by grace through faith so that we can now continue to live the purpose that he originally had intended for us. There's no contradiction there. We are not saving ourselves by our works. Looking up, what does it mean to look up? Looking up, looking to God first, we do that by looking at Jesus. And if I would ask you, who is a good example for somebody who did good works? I'm sure one of the answers would be Jesus. Jesus did good works, and yet, think about it, Jesus did not do good works to save himself. He didn't need good works for salvation. And that kind of makes sense. Well, Jesus was perfect and he didn't need to do good works for salvation. And yet he did good works. And so if we take Jesus as our example, we don't do good works to save ourselves. We can't do that. Jesus actually did that for us. But we then follow Jesus in doing good works. What are my works? If I am God's handiwork, if I am created by him to do good works, what are those works, you might ask me? And I could do the mean preacher thing and say, well, I'm not the potter. I didn't create you, and so I'm not going to tell you what your works are. That would be the easy way out for you if I just told you what that was. But not telling you what it is is the easy way out for me. Uh, so I would suggest ask the potter. We need to go to God, and we need to see, God, what is it that you have um, asked us to do, what you have created us to do? And looking up includes looking at what God has told us already. And so as we're looking at the passage today, we're doing exactly that. We're asking what is it that we should be doing. The simple answer, high level without giving too much details, is to become like Jesus. Jesus is the way and Jesus is the example. And so as we become more like Jesus, we grow in our character, we re reflect God better, and as we become more like Jesus, we start doing what he did. We go to the places that he went, we say the things that he said, and so we are following in Jesus' steps. And then verse, N, verse 10 ends with that we should walk in them. We are God's handiwork, we are his poem, we are his craftsmanship, created, in Christ Jesus to good, do good works, which he prepared beforehand for us, that we should walk in them. And here we're introduced with the idea of a journey. The Christian life is a journey. That's why Jesus says, follow me. He says, come to me, come to me, all you who are weary. 
But again and again, when he called his disciples, he said, follow me, because he is on a journey, and we are on a journey with him to follow him. We are following Jesus to the Father. Last week, Gary used the picture of the bridge. I mentioned the bridge is not the ending point. In a way, it's really a starting point. It's the starting point of this journey. Each one of us has to make that decision ourselves, whether we are going to get onto the train and cross that bridge, whether we trust the bridge, whether we think there is this gap, whether we see the separation, whether we get on the train and cross it. That is a personal decision that each one of us needs to take individually. It's not something your parents do for you. It's not something that your community does for you. It's not something that happens because you attend church here and you're part of this group of people. It's something that each one of us needs to do individually ourselves. You need to get onto the train and cross. But then the journey becomes a journey of community and we're not on that journey together. We are, we're not on that journey alone. It's not an individual thing anymore. We are on that journey together as a community. And it's a journey of community. It's also a journey of growth. It's not just a fixed point. We get to the other side and we're done. It's a continuous journey of growth. And Gary's going to come up now and he's going to help us understand a little bit more what that journey looks like. these on the way in. Some of you might have grabbed one. These are for you. So uh, we've printed lots of these, so I'm hoping everybody will, uh, will grab one on your way out today. Oh, Wayne, I thought that was, I thought that was for me. Isn't this the usual thing? Wayne brings me a thing of water. I've got second service voice every week. <clears throat> All right, I want us to start by looking at verse 17, uh, building on what Andreas has said, and we're going to see two more things here in this passage that come on the other side of the bridge. What is it that God has saved us to? So look at verse 17. It says, he came and preached peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near. For through him, we both have access to the Father by one spirit. Now, what's he talking about here? In verse 17, he's actually addressing Gentile Christians. What he's saying is, you Gentile Christians, you weren't actually part of God's Old Testament community. You weren't Jewish people, but through Jesus, God has invited you in to his people. He's invited you in to be part of his family. So that's what he's talking about there when he says he, he preached to you who were far away. That's Gentile Christians. He preached to those who were near. Those are Jewish Christians. But look at verse 18. Here's the first thing I want us to see. Through him, we both, Jews and Gentiles, have access to the Father by one Spirit. So here's the first thing I want us to see uh, in this passage as we finish up these final verses. There is a knowing. And here we see there is a knowing God. On the other side of the bridge, obviously on the dark side, we were separated from God. But on, on the salvation side, now we have a relationship with God. We have access to the Father. I wonder if any of the kids, we've got a few kids here, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to see if any of the kids can help us out here. Um, does anyone know a story from the Bible where there was a person who needed to go and talk to a king, 
but they were really scared because if they barged into the king's throne room without being invited, they could get into a lot of trouble. Any of the kids know who that was in the Bible? Abigail, do you know who it was? Esther, for that you have won your own copy of the discipleship pathway. So there, that's for you. You can put that on your fridge or in your bedroom. Esther. So many of you know the story of Esther, who is married, of course, to the king. And uh, because of um, uh, Haman's strategy to put the Jewish people to death, Esther, who is the Jewish queen, uh, is told by her uncle, you need to go talk to the king. You, you, you've been put in place for such a time as this. And this was her answer. If any man or woman goes to the king inside the inner court without being called, there is but one law to be put to death except the one to whom the king holds out the golden scepter so that he may live. So Abigail, did the king hold out the golden scepter to Esther? He did, didn't he? Yeah, Esther lived and God saved the Jewish people because of what she did. That is a contrast for us to what we find in this verse, that we have access, not just to some human king who's dead and gone in history, but to the God of creation, uh, the powerful and sovereign God of the whole universe. We have access to him. One of the beautiful ways that that's described is in the story of Jesus' death. There were some supernatural things that took place when Jesus was on the cross. There was a supernatural darkness. But at the moment when Jesus died, this happened. The veil of the temple was torn. It was a heavy, heavy cloth temple that was decorative. It was beautiful. But it was to separate or close off the way into the holiest of holies, the place where the Ark of the Covenant was. It was, it was meant to be a picture of God's throne room. Of course, we know God is everywhere at the same time, but he placed his presence especially in that holiest place of the temple, and the curtain was there to make sure no one went in there. If you went in there, you would die. So for uh, the average Jewish person, the closest you could get to God's presence there in the holiest of holies, you couldn't even get into the temple, you would stay outside where the altar was. That's as close as you could come. And you would have to come with a sacrifice, a sin sacrifice, a blood offering that would cover over your sins. And that was the only basis that you could even come that far. If you were a priest, you could go in and minister within uh, the, the tabernacle or the temple. But only if you were the high priest could you go behind the veil. Only once a year. And you'd go in with your blood sacrifice. I've been told that they would tie a rope around the high priest's ankle because if he went into the presence of God and God didn't accept the sacrifice, he would die and they would pull him out. I've heard that they actually had bells on, the, on their robes and on their garments so that people could listen from outside the veil and make sure they're still living, they're still alive in there, they're still moving around. But when Jesus died, that veil was torn in two. Notice it says in the Gospels, from top to bottom. It was torn from God's side of things down to our side of things. It was a supernatural event packed with meaning where God was saying the way is open. You don't have to fear anymore. You don't have to wonder if I will hold out a golden scepter to you. I have held out to you my son. He's given his life for you and because of that the way is open for you to come into my presence. The book of Acts tells us <clears throat> that 
that many priests in the early days of Christianity, many priests came to faith. Interesting statement, doesn't explain why. I can't help but think it was because of this. Imagine if you were a priest in the temple, serving in the temple when Jesus died. You heard, you saw the veil torn to. Or even if you just came in after, someone said, did you hear what happened in the temple? And you saw that huge curtain torn from top to bottom. Boy, that was a powerful message. That is God's message to us here in this verse. Because of what Christ has done for us, we now have access to the Father. That is a huge part of what's on the other side of the bridge. In fact, I would argue that knowing God and walking with God and growing in our relationship with God is a huge part of everything else. We get focused maybe on on the things we should be doing, but if we're not focused on the God who empowers us to do those things, then we're missing out. Knowing God, having a relationship with God is where it all starts. Jesus actually showed us what this was like when he was on the earth because he would go off often in the evenings when people would finally leave him alone and go off to their own homes and that was his time to go to his home in the sense that he would go and pray to his father. Some people say, well, yeah, that's because he was human. He just hit all these needs. No, it's because he loved his father and his life flowed from his relationship with his father and that's the way it's meant to be for us a few weeks ago we talked about to be human is to be full of the life of god to live under his blessing to have his life flowing through us and jesus showed us in his own earthly ministry and life that was his power that was his fuel that was his meaning it all came from knowing the father and that's what it should be for us as well so we have access to the Father because of Jesus. We cross this bridge and now the way is open for us to know God. But that's not the only thing we find here. Verse 18, through him we both have access to the Father by one spirit. But then 19 says, consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household. Here's the second part of knowing. We are members of God's family. And a huge part of what we find on the other side of the bridge is taken up with what's happening right here and the reality of, of this room and even what's, uh, those who are watching online is that we have a community of faith. We are part of that community and that is who we are. That's our identity. Uh, we have been taught in North America to... Um, put huge priority on the individual. And then next in line, we've placed huge priority on individual families, my family of origin, my natural family. In fact, sometimes even in Christian circles, we have so elevated that responsibility and that reality at the expense of this truth that there is another family that is a priority, and I would argue an even higher priority to God than our human responsibilities to family. We know the Bible teaches we have responsibilities to our family. Men, we have responsibilities to lead our families. We have responsibilities to provide for our family. Parents, we have responsibilities to train our children up to follow the Lord. All of that is true. 
But there is another family that God places even higher. How do we know that? Jesus teaches us this. This is a story where he was in a house. I think it was in Capernaum near his hometown. His family, his natural family, was concerned about the stories they were hearing about him and what seemed like strange things that he was doing and saying. And so as he's in this home, not far from his own hometown, his mom shows up. And his brothers, and the Gospels tell us his brothers at that time didn't believe in him. So as he's in that house teaching the people, somebody says, Hey, Jesus, your mom is outside. <laughs> what would you do if that, were, if that happened? I mean, <clears throat> we all know what we'd do. We, we'd, we'd stop what we were doing. Imagine, you know, kids, you're at, you're at your friend's house, you're playing, and all of a sudden you hear the doorbell ring, and then someone says, Hey, so-and-so, your mom is here. You wouldn't do what Jesus did because it evidently he didn't do anything. He didn't move. He didn't go out to see his mother. He didn't go out to greet her. He didn't go give her a hug. He said this, who's my mother? Uh, who are my brothers? And then pointing to his disciples, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. That is shocking. Now, moms, come on, be honest. Isn't that shocking? If your kid did that to you, they would be getting a text message later, for sure, or something. Now, it wasn't that Jesus didn't love his mother, Mary. Do you remember when he was literally dying on the cross, he looked down and saw his mom, the same woman, standing there and she happened to be beside his disciple John and he what did he say here's your mom mother here's your here's your son and he provided for her even as he's dying this uh, opportunity for her to have a home to grow old in with the apostle John so Jesus loved his mother but what is he doing here he's showing us that there is a higher priority there is a uh, a first family so as we, moms and dads, as we take our responsibility to, to raise our families and our children and to behave well in our earthly families, we're actually only doing that as we prioritize the family of God. I can imagine many of us as Christian parents, uh, you know, wanting to uh, provide for our kids and give them every opportunity and we've got them in all these different activities and we're all these different lessons and we feel like I'm being a good parent but, but hold on if you are not as a family participating in the family of God if your kids don't look at your life and see the priority of God and his family and his church then you're actually harming their understanding of the faith so you see the danger there so committed to my kids, so committed to giving them everything that, that this world has to offer, but not showing them the priority of Jesus Christ and his community. I'm actually not raising them well. We need to find ways in the midst of the busyness of life to prioritize the community of God and the family of God. Why? Because that's what's on the other side of the bridge. It's not just me and Jesus. It's not that I got my train ticket now, I got, I got it punched and now I'm good to go and I'll just carry on with my life going on my direction. To be on the right track, so to speak, means we go God's way with God's people. 
for God's purpose. So that's the first thing I want us to see is the knowing. We get to know God. We have access to God, but then we are part of his family. We are meant to know one another and live life together, together as the people of God. But then there's the growing. Verse 20 says, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling place in which God lives by his spirit. There's the knowing and there's the growing. And on the other side of the bridge, God's purpose for us as individuals, yes, but also as a community is growth and progress. We call it on the discipleship pathway, sanctification. It's a part of salvation that is ongoing in the Christian life where we are literally being transformed from what we once were into what we will be. And what we will be is like Jesus. So there's growing, clearly there is growing. And we see it here with the metaphor of a building. Uh, this, this works for me right now in the midst of our uh, renovation in Linwood. And uh, when you build on a rubble foundation, uh, you, you, you pay attention to this kind of thing. We are built not on a stone rubble foundation. We are built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. And we all know that to have a good building, a sound building, you've got to have a good foundation. We as Christians have a good foundation. We're built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Jesus. You can either see Jesus as one of those cornerstones that aligns the rest or see him as the bedrock be below uh, the rest of the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Either way, this is what it means to grow. The foundation has a lot to say about the final product. If we're built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, then we're gonna sp pay special attention to what they teach us in God's word. If Jesus is the chief cornerstone of our foundation of our faith, then, then living as Christ and being like him in the world is going to be a huge aspect of what it means to grow. And we know that that's the case already. So we grow on the foundation. What does it mean to have a firm foundation of our faith? Well, one of the things is we've got to know the word of God. That's so much of what God has given us in terms of the foundation of the apostles and prophets and the foundation of Jesus Christ. It's God's word. It's what we read, uh, not only of the things that they've said, but of the example that they have set for us. Grow on that foundation. So here's a, here's a question for us. How have you become more like Jesus during the pandemic? Andreas has told a story um, and he, I don't think he planned to tell it today, but of a time when he was uh, on the, the, the ship, what was it called again? Logos ship, uh, missionary ship. And he had the opportunity to be, uh, I think you were steering the ship through the a night shift or something. Am I getting this right? Why am I telling this story? <clears throat> and he was uh, doing so, and there was someone else uh, near him, and, and that person said, so... Uh, what has God been teaching you lately? Got that right? What has God been teaching you lately? And uh, when Andreas tells a story, he would say, I, I didn't know how to answer that question. But it's a great question. It's the kind of question we actually 
could ask one another as believers. What has God been teaching you lately? Because whatever that is, I'd like to learn from it as well, and I'd like to encourage you in that. This is a question that we should be asking ourselves and asking each other. What is God doing in your life? How is God working in your life? How has God brought conviction to your life? When's the last time you were sitting in a Sunday sermon and just felt the Holy Spirit pointing out something in his word, that putting his finger on something in your life? That, that should not be rare. Because if we're really growing on this foundation, uh, we're going to be changing. And as we uh, humble ourselves before the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives, he's going to be showing us things that need to be dealt with. How have you become more like Jesus during the pandemic? Whatever your opinion is about the pandemic, I can guarantee you this. It's been an opportunity for growth for Christians. Uh, sadly, for many of us, it's become a battleground. Other things. But how has this shaking up of our lives, whatever your opinion is of it, how has that produced growth in your life? Scripture says that trials are like a crucible that refines gold. God's intention would be for us to grow through these kinds of experiences. So we grow on the foundation, but then I'd say we also grow together. Verse 21, in him the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. The metaphor here is that the people of God are like a building. Peter uses this metaphor as well in his first letter uh, when he says to believers, you are living stones. You're being built into the temple of God. Uh, this, this is so vivid for me, again, as we work on our project in Linwood, our old red brick ch uh, church. And there's a number of places in the, in the bricks where there was cracks and uh, and so over one of the arched windows as the construction was going on and the demolition and people are pounding and banging, you could almost see the cracks getting bigger and bigger and I wondered what have I gotten myself into. And that's a great image of what it means for us as the people of God when cracks form between us. There is a bond between the people of God that we need to live in and practice and when we don't, when you start pulling a brick out and another brick out, the whole structure is weakened. God says to us, grow together. A huge part of what's on the other side of the bridge is about how we live together in the community of God. Think about how many commands of Scripture and instructions of Scripture are instructions about how we should behave with other people. That's, that's why it's so ridiculous to think that Christianity is this island thing where it's just me and God, it's just me and Jesus. If, I, I think like 90% of what the Bible teaches us, it's teaching us how to live and function with other human beings. And that is so true in the church. Jesus said that when people look at the church and see the love we have with one another, they will know we are disciples of Jesus. Or in his prayer in John 17, John prayed for the unity of the church. And he says that through that unity, all men will know that you, God, sent me. 
There is a supernatural revelation that comes from the unity and the strength of the church. And that's why as that church grows, what are we becoming increasingly? The house of God. The more we grow and are strengthened and are knit together, the more we are the presence of God in this world that's so desperate for him. Grow together. If you want to, just flip over to chapter 4 of Ephesians. And look at verses 15 and 16 of chapter 4. Paul still instructing believers in Ephesus. He says, instead, speaking the truth in love, we will grow to become in every respect the mature body of him who is the head, that is Christ. You see how Jesus is the goal. That's why we're his body, we're his temple. And from him, the whole body, joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. You pull a brick out, the whole structure's weakened. But the more we build together and are knit together, the stronger the building is. We have responsibilities, not just to ourselves, not just to our human families, but to one another. So, no one gets off the hook with this. If you're a follower of Jesus, you have responsibilities to the people in this room. You do. Remember the first time I uh, told uh, a pastor, mentor of mine, that he asked me, well, what do you want to do when, you get, when, you're, when you're done high school? And my answer was, I think I want to be in ministry. His answer to me as a 17, 18-year-old kid was, Aren't you already in ministry? The lesson was, if you're a follower of Jesus, you're in ministry. You have responsibilities. God's given you a spiritual gift. God's given you commands that instruct you to bear one another's burdens, to pray for one another, to edify one another, to serve one another. Do you hear all those things? All of those one another commands all through Scripture. There is so much instruction about how we behave towards and for each other. So my final two questions are these. Who is influencing you? If you're part of this beautiful structure that God is building, if you're part of the family of God, God's intention is that other believers would be influencing you. And their gifts, and their example, and their knowledge of Scripture, and their life as they passionately follow Jesus would be influencing you. And, And here's the reality. We're all influenced by somebody. If it's not the people of God, if it's not God through His Word, God through His people, there is something else that's influencing you. Maybe it's a cultural influence. Maybe it's a desire. Maybe it's money. Maybe it's an attitude that permeates the workspace where you work. Something is influencing every one of us. Is it God and his people? And then how about this? How are you influencing others? And don't kid yourself, you are. We're all influencing others. And even if your influence is is simply in a kind of mediocre, half-hearted, lukewarm faith, the danger of that is there's people around you who feel that that's, that's the line. And my lukewarmness 
influences others to be lukewarm. We're all influencing others. How are you influencing other people in God's church, in God's family? How are you using your gift? The discipleship path is all about this. My encouragement to us is find someone in your life who's on the left side of the cross, still in darkness, still separated, maybe searching, maybe not. Have someone in your life, a coworker, a neighbor, a friend, a loved one, who doesn't know Jesus and begin, number one, begin to pray for them. The first thing you might need to pray is, God, give me a love for this person. If it's your boss, maybe you need to pray that first. Help me to have compassion for this person's soul. And then begin to pray for their salvation. And begin to pray that God would open opportunities for you to share your faith. Pray that God would enable you to be an example of faith. That they might see the hope that you have and ask you about it. But have someone, at least one person in your life on the left side of the cross that you're praying for and seeking to point to Jesus. And then have someone on the right side of the cross. Someone who is a believer, maybe a young believer, maybe a younger person. Have someone on that side of the cross that you are coming alongside. And so every Sunday morning you seek that person out and you're praying for that person through the week and you're maybe messaging that person. You're encouraging them. Maybe it's someone that's in a ministry. If you're a youth leader or a Sunday school teacher, God puts that young person on your heart and you're praying for them and encouraging them. And then I would say, have someone also on the right side of the cross who is mentoring and ministering to you. And if you don't have a person like that, go and ask somebody. Now, I've had the experience of asking one or two, guys, one or two people to do that, and uh, they didn't have time for me. That's a little bit painful. But, but seek those people who can minister to you. Ask them to pray for you. Ask them, and, and even take them to coffee, pay for their Tim Hortons, and ask them questions. How do you do this? And how do you understand this? And how, how are you so patient in this situation? Have someone on the right side of the cross that you are pursuing, who you see Christ in, and you want them to help you become more like Jesus as well. On the right side of the cross, we have these three uh, Stages, but we don't really like calling them stages or categories. It's just the reality that there is growth, there is progress. And so for someone who's starting out, our desire for you, if you're a new believer, is that you get baptized. And if you haven't been baptized at some point, someone's going to talk to you about that and someone's going to challenge you and encourage you about that. And when you get baptized, we're going to encourage you to write out your testimony, not just so that you can get baptized and give your testimony, but so that you're ready at school or at work or with, uh, with relatives or friends to tell your story of what Jesus has done for you. That's what starting is. We want you to start forming new habits of coming to worship on Sundays and finding a small group. But then as you grow and as you're strengthened in your faith, there's, there's greater expectations that you would get involved in ministry, as we've said already, that you would find a way to serve in the church, uh, that you would be looking for people that you can encourage. You would be growing in your knowledge of the Bible. You'd be plugged into a small group and helping others get plugged in as well. So many of us in this room probably would look at this and say, well, I'm not sure where I, maybe I'm starting, but, but we might say, well, I hope I'm being strengthened. 
I don't know if anyone here would say, yeah, I'm sanctified, I'm, I'm all the way. But that's where we're heading. Our goal is to be like Christ. I wonder where you see yourself this morning, this afternoon. Where do you see yourself? What is the next step for you in your Christian faith? Let me leave that question with you as Andreas comes now to close. I was snooping on uh, my kids who were looking at the little postcard and they did the right thing. They were like, so where am I on that journey? And then they would talk about, where's dad on that journey? Well, certainly not over there on Sanctified. <laughs> and that, that is a reality. In fact, none of us will actually ever fully reach that. And maybe in knowledge, we feel like we're, we're quite far along. We've, we've read a lot, we've learned a lot, we've been in this for years, but character, we might be lacking a little bit. And so in different areas of our lives, we might be on different stages. Um, and like Gary said, the stages is not to put people in boxes and say, well, you're here and you're here and, and that's how we deal with people, but to realize that it is a process and that we all have different needs. We're all at different stages. And as a church, we want to be helping people to follow Jesus. We want to help those who are starting to understand some of those foundations. And, and we've been talking about that as leadership as well. There are things that we as a church feel we can do better because we have not been helping people to follow Jesus as well as maybe we could. As we close this series... Uh, we're going to take communion in a, in a moment. I'd like you to ask this question. I, I want to ask this question myself. Am I following Jesus? And that can be a fundamental question. Am I even on board with all of this? Is this discipleship path, is, is that the lens through which I see the world? Do I actually believe that? Or am I following the world? Am I following some other ideology? Am I following my own way? But even if we say we are, we buy into this, we are following Jesus said some pretty strong things about what it means to be a true disciple, what it means to follow. And I just picked out three here. In John 8, 31, Jesus says, if you abide in my words, you are truly my followers. In John 15, he talks about abide in me. Here, abide in my words. Are we abiding in Jesus' words? If I, if I say I'm a follower of Jesus, am I actually abiding in his words? Am I getting to know him? Uh, better and better. Am I giving up all for Jesus? Am I giving up all my values? Am I giving up my priorities? Luke 14, 33, Jesus says, if you do not give up all your possessions, you are not my disciples. You can't be followers of me. That's pretty strong language. And yet, so often I live as if, well, I can have this and Jesus. I kind of become the potter and the pot at the same time, I decide what needs to be done with this vessel. And then am I taking up my cross daily in Luke 9, 23? Again, Jesus speaking. Jesus is saying all these things. He says, if you want to follow after me, you must take up your cross daily. It's not a one-time thing. It is a one-time thing to cross the bridge. It's making that decision, but it's not a one-time thing to give up my own desires, my own ideas, and to decide to follow Jesus. It's a daily thing.